Okay, okay, okay. That's the foghorn, and you know what that means. It is time for the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavis. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, navies and militaries around the world are operating at an unusually high level, particularly Russia, but also the U.S., its NATO allies, and other partners. And much of it related to the Russian threat of invasion aimed at Ukraine. Is this all just so much movement and motion, or is there real purpose behind it? And what are the risks of unintended consequences? We'll talk about that, as well as what happens when so-called unauthorized imagery appears of military mishaps, and have a look at a major change at the top of the U.S. Navy's primary shipbuilder. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The U.S. Navy F-35C Joint Strike Fighter from Strike Fighter Squadron 147 crashed January 24th while landing aboard the aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson in the Philippine Sea. The pilot ejected and was recovered, but six sailors on the ship, along with the pilot, were injured when the aircraft apparently hit the landing area hard and went over the side into the sea. The ship resumed flight operations while an investigation has begun, and the Navy has announced its intention to recover the aircraft. The exact location of the incident has not been released, but the average depth of the Philippine Sea is well over 13,000 feet. The Argonauts of VFA-147 are the first squadron to deploy the F-35C variant of the Joint Strike Fighter aboard an aircraft carrier. Two days prior to the landing incident, the Carl Vincent took part in a major power demonstration in the Philippine Sea involving five flat tops, the Vincent and sister ship Abraham Lincoln, big deck amphibious ship Essex in America, and Japan's Hayuga. Marine Fighter Squadron 314 aboard the Lincoln is the second squadron to deploy with the F-35 Charlie variant of this Joint Strike Fighter, along with Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 121 aboard the America, flying short takeoff F-35 Bravo variants. It's marked the first time three ships with regularly deployed F-35 Joint Strike Fighters have operated together. A few days later, both carriers moved their operations to the South China Sea. Meanwhile, the Russian Defense Ministry announced January 20th a widespread series of exercises taking place into mid-February in, quote, all areas of responsibility of all fleets of the Russian Navy. More than 140 warships and support ships, more than 60 aircraft, more than 10,000 service members are taking part. Three of the Russian amphibious ships coming from northern bases entered the Mediterranean on 27 January, 12 days after leaving the Russian naval base of Baltiisk in the Baltic Sea. Russian media reports the ships will conduct exercises in the Mediterranean with a Pacific Fleet cruiser and a destroyer who have been deployed over the past month for a series of visits and exercises. Those two ships, with an oiler, visited India and Iran and exercised with Iranian and Chinese warships. It's expected all six amphibious ships will continue into the Black Sea to the Russian naval base of Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula. And meanwhile, Russia's announced intent to hold these live-fire naval and air exercises in the North Atlantic southwest of Ireland has prompted a strong reaction in that country, as well as significant international interest. Leaders of Ireland's fishing industry met with the Russian ambassador January 27th, and according to the Russian TASS news agency, the ambassador, quote, urged the, the, the Irish fishermen to refrain from any provocative actions which might endanger all involved. 
The skies have been full of activity as well. Russian media reported January 28th that 51 foreign aircraft, 32 manned aircraft, and 19 unmanned UAVs were detected conducting aerial reconnaissance along the borders of the Russian Federation, and multiple social media sites confirmed similar levels of activity. A Russian newspaper reported that despite all the activity, no violations of Russian airspace have taken place. On a more peaceful note, naval units from several nations have been arriving in Tonga to help provide disaster and humanitarian relief after the major volcanic eruption of January 15th disrupted the South Pacific Island nation. Naval ships from New Zealand, France, and the U.S., among others, have been providing support. The largest naval supply effort was by Australia's big assault ship Adelaide, who, despite a COVID outbreak on board the ship, managed to dislodge all their cargo on shore without human contact. Tonga has been virtually virus-free throughout the pandemic, and the relief efforts, while needed, are also considered something of a health threat. And in ship construction, Austal USA held a ceremonial keel laying on January 26th for the Expeditionary Fast Transport Cody, hall number EPF-14, the event was preceded on January 17th by the initial steel cutting for the follow-on EPF Point Loma. Both ships are Flight 2 variants of the U.S. Navy's Spearhead-class ships, with strengthened flight decks able to handle MV-22 Osprey tilt rotor aircraft. And that's a look at some of this week's naval news. All right, well, it's time to talk about a few things that have been going on. And just a few. I, just a few. <laughs> so... This business will get out of control. It will get out of control and we'll be lucky to live through it. We're sure most of you listening recognize that line. It's from the movie A Hunt from Red October. It's where Fred Thompson as Admiral Josh Painter comes topside on his aircraft carrier just after a ramp strike by a, an aircraft trying to land on the ship. So we've talked about all this activity. Um, there's so much happening. A lot of it is demonstration, demonstration of intent, demonstration of capability, demonstration of just demonstration. Um, what, what is all this, Chris? I mean, is this, is there, is there purpose to this movement? Does it, does it really mean anything? Is it just people, you know, shaking a sword at each other? Well, I think there is purpose to it. Um, will it mean anything now and in the future? But that I don't know, Chris. I, um, I mean, I think that the NATO allies hope that it, uh, it has an impact on, on Russian behavior and um, perhaps even on Chinese behavior as a way of getting to the Russians. Um, you, you know, the big, I would say, uh, movements in, uh, in the Mediterranean associated with the, uh, the Harry S. Truman strike group as the strike group shifted um, hats, if you will, from a strictly U.S. command and control um, to NATO. Now, um, for those that aren't familiar, that's pretty routine. Um, that's either done during exercises or just done um, as a way of telegraphing um, you know, more uh, interoperability and more resolve uh, throughout the line of the alliance. So, um, you know, on one day, the um, the ship belonged to UCOM, Navier, and Sixth Fleet. On the next day, it belonged to uh, Shape, uh, JFC Naples, and Strike Force NATO. All three of the same uh, commanders, just in a in a different hat. 
Um, and so we'll, you'll continue to see those types of um, shifting of command and control. You'll see, you'll continue to see highly publicized NATO exercises throughout the spring and longer as, as needed. Um, I had an opportunity to talk to a few contacts in uh, Europe and in, uh, in the NATO uh, organization this week. And uh, they said that um, as a way of demonstrating resolve, they were going to turn up uh, the media coverage and media embarks uh, of those operations. So um, I, you know, and that's to say nothing of what we're seeing in the Pacific, uh, you, you know, with the, the number of flat tops that we talked about at the top of the show. Mm -hmm. And so with all of that um, demonstration of force and demonstration of resolve um, does come the, the chance um, for unintended consequence as uh, Fred Thompson's character, uh, Admiral Painter, uh, made clear in the movie A Hunt for Red October. Um, and so to me, that that's the most concerning part of where we are right now. Um, put the, you know, Russia moving into Ukraine, Russia potentially going further than Ukraine, put that aside just for a second. With all of this naval activity, with all of these um, U.S. partner and, uh, you know, competitor navies operating in close proximity, um, are we proficient enough? Are we skilled enough to do this without having a bump in the night that causes bigger problems? That, that's what I'm worried about right now. Right. Now people get people on the scene uh, can get excited, can get hyped up in the moment. Um, it's particularly when you're when you're trying to make make a point, you want to zoom past people, um, aircraft getting way too close. Um, you know, both sides, both sides, which sides? How many right. sides are we talking about? All the sides. <laughs> um, people have seemed to have backed off the really super close uh, aviation encounters that we've been seeing the last few years, just in recent months. But with all this activity and all this shadowing, that may or may not continue. Um, people do get excited. I mean, I remember the, the EP3E incident from, from quite some years ago now. Um, in the early aughts with uh, U.S. Navy spy plane in the EP-3 Aries um, near China and, and a couple of Russian, a couple of Chinese pilots out zooming, zooming and zorching all around them. And uh, one of them pretty much got too excited, got too close. Uh, they had a collision. Uh, the Chinese pilot was killed. The American crew bailed out or landed, made, a, made an emergency landing. Um, that turned into a major incident. And it's one of the things that led to the Navy's establishing these um, protocols for communicating with each other in case of an incident. So essentially, you know, the adults back home have, have a way to get on the horn with each other because the young people out on the scene are, um, are, are maybe going beyond their instructions. But those protocols are still in place, but my understanding is they haven't been used or exercised at all lately. I mean, for, for a while we were doing, we, the U.S., were routinely talking to the Chinese. Um, that seems to have stopped. Uh, nobody canceled anything. It's just not happening. Uh, so what happens now when the, even, even with the Russians, the uh, communications with the Russians in Syria, for example, um, when somebody's going to do an action, you know, we'll, we'll tell them, they'll tell us something, um, you know, watch out keep your head down, something, uh, various, will that happen in this, in this case? Is that atmosphere even still out there? Uh, probably not. 
it, it does it does become pretty dangerous. Um, what what is this? So when uh, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby announced this um, Neptune strike activity on January twenty first, he told us a week ago. Um, people took that as an exercise, Neptune strike, but it's not. They characterize this as vigilance activity, Neptune strike. This is what the Harry S. Truman uh, carrier strike group now has been assigned to and they're operating under. And other entities are taking part. So the French aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle is doing this. The uh, Italian aircraft carrier Cavour apparently is part of it. Um, but this Neptune strike is not a and not an exercise per se. It was it's it's it's, it's some it's a it's, it's a contingency plan, right? Can you explain a little bit more of that? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned um, when I first started, Chris, I mean the um, the Allies um, in the Mediterranean and as part of uh, working um, with NATO routinely switch uh, the command and control from their uh, host nation Navy uh, traditional command and control over to uh, NATO command and control. And that's what you saw here. So um, in, in the case of Neptune strike, um, the United States, and as you mentioned, others shifted from their, their home Navy to NATO uh, command and control as a way of demonstrating uh, NATO resolve. Sometimes that is done as part of the Neptune exercise um, series. Uh, sometimes it's it, sometimes it's done in response to real world activities, and so that's why there was a little bit of confusion this week as to was this you know a pre planned exercise? Was it a spontaneously um, called exercise? I mean, in reality, I'm not sure that it matters. It's kind of semantics. Um, what what the what the takeaway is, is that you now have the allies um, under the NATO uh, command and control umbrella um, demonstrating their resolve both to uh, the other NATO countries, other partner nations in the area, and probably most importantly to the Russians. It's true. So, but then again, what difference does it make? People just take it. I mean, you know, the Russians are doing this really big time right now, making a major effort. They're in the Barents Sea um, on the north. They're right up to the Norwegian coast. Um, they're in the Mediterranean. They've been in the Gulf of Oman. They're now um, the the North Atlantic, southwest of Ireland. Um, that's not their normal operating area for surface ships, and it's definitely not a normal operating area to go have live fire exercises. Um, they're banging the drum all over the place. To what extent? And is it? I mean, do, it 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 popped up in the. Um, in, in the press conference, uh, January 28th, Friday, with uh, Secretary of Defense Austin and um, Chairman Milley, that the Russians are doing all this on a much on, on this immense scale. Um, Milley talked about all the movements, and of course, the Russians at this point, as we speak, have moved something over 100,000 troops along the, along the border with um, Ukraine. In it. So I have all these naval movements, all these aircraft movements. Milley said it was larger in scale and scope than anything we've seen in recent years, certainly going back to the Cold War days, which is 30 some odd years. So this is, this is for, for the Russian Federation anyway, unprecedented for the Soviet Union, it's not. Well, and it, it's odd, right? Not to get too geopolitical, but it does pertain particularly to the, the naval actions. Um, juxtapose Milley's comments to what you're seeing from uh, the leadership in Ukraine, who are trying to tamp down uh, domestic fears, who are trying to, you know, hey, we're going to be fine, everything's going to be okay. Um, and so the language by Milley and others, you know, seems at odds with, with that. 
whatever side you you believe, I mean, I think it 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 as we started off this discussion, it's unprecedented, at least in the last decade, this type of uh, naval activity and you know all the things that go with it. And, and as I said, I, I and and you've mentioned we worry about what are the unintended consequences. I also worry about how long we can keep this up. Right. So, I mean, if the Russians kind of carry this type of behavior on through the spring and through the summer, you know, do, do we have the readiness? Do we have the naval capability? You know, what's the cost of that uh, as we remain on the step, um, you know, in Europe, in the Middle East uh, and in Asia uh, or, or the Indo-Pacific? You know, what, what's the cost of that and what does that do to our long term readiness? It's a good question. And um, the, the coming months will We'll play out and we'll find out. So shipping, shipping, uh, shipping, shifting, shifting, shipping topics <laughs> just a little bit. Um, so as uh, Fred Thompson uh, came up, came up topside when there was a ramp strike, there was a parent, an apparent ramp strike of an aircraft, as we said, on the uh, carrier Carl Vinson. Um, a few days later, actually January 27th, uh, an image appeared on Reddit um, by an anonymous poster uh, of, of an aircraft, an F-35, what looks, looks awfully like an F-35C, um, floating in the water. Uh, looks like it just happened. Um, no canopy. Looks like it was blown. No seat inside. Um, looks, like an F, looks like a 35 Charlie. Floats like a 35 Charlie. Is it a 35 Charlie? Who knows? So the Navy doesn't want to confirm this, doesn't want to, you know, it's not our photo. We won't confirm or deny the um, and then later that evening, uh, a little video shows up on Instagram. Looks like a cell phone video shot from the fantail of the looks like from the Carl Vinson of this aircraft making its approach. Um, and it, the, the video doesn't show the crash itself. You can't if you're down on the fantail, the, the, the flight deck is above you. Um, the, the plane comes in right over your head. But um, you see the plane come in, um, plane revs up just before something happens, and then it smacks. There's a, there's a big thud, which happens anyway when an airplane lands on a ship, and smoke, debris, and the video. So neither of these, uh, these are unofficial videos. They seem to be what they are. No, there, nobody, there, there's no official poster here. They're anonymous. Um, this this is going to happen in the world. I know, you know, in the media world, you don't want to be suckered into playing a fake video, running a fake photo. Um, it's something we've been, everybody's been wrestling with for for years. It happens everywhere. Historians worry about this. You know, people altering images um, in a world where everything is digital. Um, what do you do? So I mean, you you were you know you're you're a big time public affairs officer. <laughs> I, um, I was at one point, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you, Maybe. <laughs> what, what do you do? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a, it, it's a fair question. You can't stop it. You can't say, well, we no. have to take all the cell phones away from everybody. By the way, the same thing happened with the British um, when a few months ago an F thirty five B Bravo um, rolled off the, the the launch ramp of the carrier Queen Elizabeth. In the Mediterranean, because of apparently a stupid accident, um, but um, there was first a photo and then a, then a video. They arrested. They, they they figured out who did it. They arrested the guy. Um, they're pretty upset. 
on the other hand, you know, what's the, what do you do? You can't say no anymore. Everybody's got a cell phone somewhere. A couple different la- layers of chess here being played by the the ship and the strike group, and then you know big big navy. I mean, obviously, is the decision um, when and what to put out from a navy standpoint, right? I mean, because now you have an aircraft, a a, a highly technical aircraft, brand new that our adversaries would love to get their hands on. You have that in the water. So when do you you put that information out? What um, is part of that information as a as a way of sort of you know responsibly sharing information with uh, the public, but also um, protecting uh, the advantage that the United States has over uh, its adversaries. So that's kind of level one. Level two is, is um, how do you keep that, you know, how do you keep unauthorized information and unauthorized imagery uh, from leaving the ship? Um, you know, do you lock it? The, do you lock the ship down? Do you go to what we call in the Navy River City, which is a um, an information uh, security level in which you, you only certain people can send information off the ship. So it's essentially the general crew can't can't access their uh, their email. So do you, I mean do you do you do that? And then the third level is is okay now it's out there because somebody did get the information off the ship or presumably got something that looked like that off the ship. Do you go and try to find out who that person is and, and punish them? And what what's the repercussion for that? And so that's what the Navy finds itself doing uh, or dealing with th- this week. Um, I give the Navy credit for putting the information out um, and, and, you know, because that type of stuff does get out. Um, and, and, you know, you mean just announcing that the, the- right, it, exactly. I mean, I, I did see there, there were some people criticizing that, you know, Hey, why would you, if you're worried about the Chinese or somebody potentially getting their hands on this ship or some of the technology, why would you even tell the world that, that you had an F-35 in the drink? Um, well, because you know, that, that's what we do. We, we, you know, we're the good guys. We, we share information and, you, you know, we share different levels of information and, and then there's a practical sense of, you know, that this type of information is going to get out. So you want to make sure that you share it, yeah. the right information so that, um, you, you know, you, you're not dealing with what we're dealing with on the, on the imagery side. Um, so there's l- lots of different levels to this as we, as we've discussed. Yeah. There's no, there really is no easy answer. It's really, it, I think that one of the, one of the frustrating things for me looking at, looking at things is that if you apply, you, you just can't apply the same standard to every incident that this happens to this. It's, you really have to be able to make a judgment. In the media world, we call it editorial judgment. What do you think? You take all these things into consideration. In this case, I don't know that anything is particular, particularly that sensitive, uh, both, both in both incidents, when the, when the 35 Bravo rolled off the Queen Elizabeth. I mean, frankly, it, was just, it certainly was embarrassing. That, 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 that's for sure. Um, this, you know, every, every, uh, landing on an aircraft carrier is uh, is recorded. You know, I mean, sit, you can sit around the ship in ready rooms and you know, sit and it's a fun game to watch everybody land and grade it as it as it as it happens. Live TV, um, big, I mean, major event. So we'd all like we'd all like to see the video of this crash. What actually happened? It's unusual. You don't have ramp strikes too often. There's so many, so much automation. The systems are so sophisticated. It is incredibly hard. You know, the whole idea of landing a high-performance aircraft on a moving flight deck is nuts. Um, but 
you know, a lot of people have been doing it for a long time and it is risky. It's definitely risky. No, nobody's questioned. In this case, it was a optimum um, flying conditions, you know, lovely weather, calm seas, calm, uh, calm air, sunshine. Um, there were no extenuating circumstances, it would appear. Right. But, um, nevertheless, um, sometimes I think the Navy could, you know, could say, yeah, we didn't, we didn't authorize that. We're not happy about it, but it's everywhere. So yeah, that's it. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that you didn't hear that. Um, if not off the record, uh, or excuse me, if not on background, you, you know, somebody at least, uh, say, say that, um, just to kind of keep people from speculating, um, Typically, not to do too much inside baseball, but I mean, your job as a professional spokesman is to help the media get it right. Yeah. And when you can get rid of some of that speculation and get rid of, uh, you know, keep them from running down uh, frivolous leads or looking for stuff on social media that they don't have to go follow, you try to do that. Um, you know, Pack Fleet and Seven Fleet decided not to do that in this case. And so I'm sure they had, had good reason for that. Um, you, you know, you do wonder if this had been a super hornet, if it had been um, at a different time when there wasn't, you know, the naval world wasn't on fire uh, across all AORs, you know, what would they have made different, uh, in, you know, as you said, editorial decisions? Um, it, it's hard to tell. Right. Well, moving on just uh, real, real quick before we go, um, pretty interesting corporate development. And we don't normally talk corporate developments on this show, but uh on the morning of January 28th, uh, Huntington Ingalls Industries, the uh, nation's largest shipbuilder, uh, announced a major change that Mike Petters, who's the um, um, president and uh, chief executive officer of, of Huntington Ingalls, will be stepping down. Um, he's going to be succeeded by um, Chris Kasner. And Petters has been a, just an incredible force behind that company. Uh, he's, he's been in the company for over 30 years. Uh, they used to be owned by Tenneco. Um, they were, he, he, they uh, were taken over by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman dumped them um, in 2011 and the company was set up as its own entity and very few people expected it to survive. Uh, Petters was uh, under Northrop Grumman, the head of the shipyards, but then he became the head of HII as uh, incorporated. And people gave them very little chance to survive um, for more than a handful of years. And who, who would buy the parts was really what people talked about. And nevertheless, Huntington Ingalls is thriving. Um, for folks who don't know, this is the, the uh, major shipyard in Newport News, Virginia, the only yard in the world right now that builds 90,000 ton nuclear powered aircraft carriers. And they build nuclear submarines there and down in um, Past Gula, Mississippi, Ingalls is the um, one of the largest is the largest single shipbuilder in the United States in terms of different kinds of ships it builds. It builds half the Navy's destroyers, all of its amphibious ships, uh, the Coast Guard's national security cutters, the biggest ships in the Coast Guard. Um, it's just a phenomenal operation, and they have all had their problems. They certainly they still do, but. Um, Mike Petters seems to have negotiated this as far better than anybody gave him, gave him a chance to. What do you think? Well, I mean, you know, his impact uh, in the three decades that he's been a shipbuilder, I, I think goes even well beyond Huntington Ingalls and, and all of the different maturations of the companies that, that you mentioned. I mean, he is 
really the nation's lead shipbuilder um, right. as, as an individual. I mean, he's the guy that other uh, folks in the industry look to. Everything that he says is um, dissected and uh, people try to learn from it. Um, I mean, and, and you, you know, having had the opportunity while working with the Defense and Aerospace Report, as well as for working with different naval leaders to be in his company many, many times and hear him speak both formally and informally, I, I mean, I'm in awe of, of Mike Petters. I, I really am. I mean, and I, I apologize if this comes off as a, as a fanboy moment, but yeah. um, the insight that he has, the plain spokenness that he uh, delivers his messages with, um, I mean, th this is a guy that you can really tell cares about his job as a, as a shipbuilder, both in terms of obviously for his company, but also sort of broader uh, national security um, care. Um, he cares about his his people. I mean, you, you know, we know a lot of folks in the in the industry, and some people are more caring than others. I mean, he would be at the top of the list when it comes to really worrying about and caring about the quality of life and the quality of work of, of shipbuilders. And so, I think to say he's going to be missed, um, or to say that people are going to have a close eye on HII and see how they progress, you know, po post Mike Petters is is really an understatement. Um, so you know, sort of congratulate him, but also kind of worry that HII and the larger shipbuilding industry will, you know, will have to, to fill his big shoes. Right. I mean, uh, you, didn't, you didn't mention he's a Naval Academy graduate. Right. Class in 82. Yeah. He grew up in North Florida, a uh, big, uh, big baseball fan, loves the Atlanta Braves. Um, you know, is it, he can do some of the best impressions of the Atlanta Braves broadcasters uh, that anybody can. He's fantastic at it. Uh, knows his knows his baseball, knows his Braves, knows his broadcasting, and he also uh, does the follows. Uh, I think the the number one rule that should be followed by anyone who aspires to be the head of a shipyard, he drives a pickup truck. So good for him, and uh, we wish him the best. We absolutely do. All right. Hear this now. Hear this now. All right. All right. All right. Now hear this. It's time for Squawk Box. So as if everything we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes isn't enough, earlier this week, the Navy held another conference call with reporters to discuss the potential negative impacts if Congress should fail to pass a budget for fiscal 2022. Sadly, that's not news. It happens virtually every year with Congress habitually unable to pass a spending bill before the October 1st beginning of the fiscal year. Instead, your public servants on Capitol Hill pass continuing resolutions, CRs and Hill speak, to keep the money flowing, but at the same rate and for the same things set in the previous budget. Sometimes the CR is for a few days or a few weeks. The current CR, the second of this fiscal year, will keep your government running through February 18th. And there is serious talk of making the next CR effective for the rest of the fiscal year, all the way through September 30th. And while the Navy and the Pentagon often overstate the negative effects of these continuing resolutions, they have, after all, learned to manage their spending in ways to avoid many of the worst effects. There are areas where they can do only so much. New construction, for example, is a perennial problem. You can't continue funding a ship this year if it didn't exist last year. And the service is warning it won't be able to buy the new ships and aircraft it needs. The Navy can ask Congress for a special exemption called an anomaly, but the service chooses to keep those anomaly requests to a bare minimum. In any case, 
It's a hell of a way to run a government. Truth is, I don't think many politicians have any idea of the effects of actions such as this outside, such as this, outside their Capitol Hill enclave. It's all politics to them. It's about deal-making and posturing and more seriously, simply refusing to cooperate with those they don't agree with. And this CR stuff is a really bad habit. The last time Congress passed all its spending bills on time was back in the last century, 1996. I truly don't care which side these obstructionists are on. I just want them to get something done. The truth is the only thing we need these folks to do is pass the 12 separate bills that fund your federal government. That's it. That's all they have to do. Everything else is just stuff. We have so much else to worry about, Congress. Please just do your job. Here, here. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>